DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California. He also serves as the Academic Advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the writings of St. Teresa of Avalon, whose spiritual classic, The Way of Perfection, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. I think sometimes we fall into traps where I'm, I'm moving in levels. I'm going, I've, I'm just like walking up the steps of a ladder uh, or a staircase. And I've moved from recollection. I'm now in the prayer of quiet and I'm not going to go back. But it's not quite like that, is it? I mean, even as she describes it. No, that's the idea of it being a spark, is you have this prayer for a moment, and then you go back to your prayer of recollection. And then, you know, slowly or gradually, the the prayer of quiet might come more frequently in, in your life and might last with you a little bit longer. And when it does, it produces more and more good things. This kind of prayer is a, a gift. You can't force God to do it, and you can't just will yourself into it. What you can do is be ready for it, to welcome it, to receive it, to thank God for it when you are given it. This uh, is, is a gift, you know, like every good gift. The, the How you treat this gift is how you treat the giver. So if you're selfishly grasping for it, you're not really treating the the giver very well. You need to wait until the giver wants to give it to you or to slough it off and not appreciate what God has done. This also is not to appreciate the gift that God would have for us either. It's that gracious welcoming of this gift, this readiness to respond to what God wants to do in our hearts that expresses the gratitude, the hospitality, if you will, uh, this prayer needs if it's to be fruitful in our lives, if we are to grow in it more. So what you're saying is right. It's not that you'll never go back to the prayer of recollection or vocal prayer. In fact, this whole book, The Way of Perfection, is about teaching vocal prayer. And what she's saying is that there's a relationship between the most humble vocal petition, the, those petitions given us in the Our Father, and the most lofty kind of mystical union with God. That these aren't two opposed things you never really have to abandon one to find the other one leads into the other and so while you're experiencing the other you might not finish the our father because you got caught up in prayer surrender to that grace it's beautiful but then has the spark kind of seems to disappear because it's already done the good fruit it's supposed to do and you recall where you are in the our father just pick up where you left off and continue in the prayer if God wants to give you another spark, he will. And if he doesn't, it's up to him. He's sovereign. Our job is to simply receive the gift when he gives it and to appreciate the gift as it's poured out in our hearts. 
the prayer of quiet then is that part of that experience of contemplation that she distinguishes about because for some who might be trying to enter into this in an experience say for example as saint ignatius would teach about meditation and contemplation it's, it's a different understanding for the carmelite understanding of contemplation than it is maybe in the way that ignatius spoke of it well ignatian contemplation involves spiritual exercises and really is about the sanctification of the imagination. Very, very important effort. And Teresa's not unaware of it. In fact, she refers to it in in these teachings. So she's not uh, unaware of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. But when she speaks of the prayer of quiet, she is speaking of something not so much that we do where the Ignatian exercises, for example, are a method of prayer we call interior composition of place. And that is where you use your imagination to put yourself in a scripture passage. And so you hear Jesus' voice with, with your ears and you feel with your sense of touch the wetness or the dryness of the occasion and what smells are there. And, and so in plunging your whole imagination into this biblical scene, you are making yourself present to the Lord. There are gifts of grace that are given as you invest yourself this way, as you explore the things you feel while you're in the presence of Jesus, as you explore what you believe Jesus may be feeling as he encounters you, what Jesus sees with his resurrected eyes when he looks out on people, what people see when they yearn for him to touch them. This plunge of the imagination, allowing it to be baptized in divine revelation, is a a powerful form of prayer. And it leads to this prayer of recollection that Teresa is talking about. And And it can even dispose, because it leads to recollection, it even disposes to this prayer of quiet. So it's not that somebody who practices a nation prayer never knows this prayer of quiet. But she's going to describe something now that St. Ignatius, Ignatius doesn't necessarily describe. It's not that he doesn't believe it doesn't exist. The whole purpose of the Ignatian exercises in a certain way is to help lead souls into this prayer of quiet, into this contemplative prayer. In in fact, in the very beginning of the exercises, he says that the exercises that he proposes are just some of the many exercises that a soul might engage in while they're on retreat. And they're only being offered, he's only offering them insofar as it helps lead the soul into a deeper encounter with God. The prayer of quiet is the beginning of this deeper encounter. And so there's a way in which the descriptions and the rules of discernment that St. Ignatius offers leads to the descriptions that Teresa picks up on here. And so one leads into the other. So those who invested themselves deeply in the Ignatian exercises probably have had all the experiences that St. Teresa of Avila is describing. It's just in her charism, she's going to put the emphasis more on this encounter with the Lord that our spiritual exercises dispose us to and what happens to a soul 
as it invests in this, it's going. She's going to look at that more and more, uh, especially starting here uh, around chapter thirty, thirty-one to the end of her book. This these last twelve chapters, it's going to be all about what God does in us and and how we should respond to that, rather than spiritual exercises or techniques that we should take up. She's using the most simple technique of all to get us there, the technique of the vocal prayer that Jesus taught us to say, you know, and she's, but the reason why this very simple vocal prayer can take us to these spiritual heights is because as she understands this prayer, this prayer is something that involves our mind and our intellect and composition of place, if you will. Uh, uh, all, all of this is what recollection is. But once you're recollected, she's saying, now there's space in your soul for something more. In other words, it's not what our own efforts or techniques can achieve in prayer. It's not the state of consciousness that we are able to accomplish that is the greatest thing that Christian prayer has to offer. It's this other contemplative prayer, this prayer where God is working, where God is doing something that is the most powerful, the most beautiful thing that God wants to accomplish. So what is occurring in chapter 30 that helps us to transition to that moment? In these chapters, she's beginning to think, her contemplation has gone from our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now she's starting to reflect on these words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer of quiet comes at the will of God. You know, uh, there's our will and then there's God's will. God's will will be done in us when and how it wants. And so there's nothing we can do to accomplish this prayer of quiet. We can dispose ourselves to it, but it's up to God to do when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, the way he wants to do it. it. It's up to him completely. So this kind of prayer then, we can't accomplish it by our own industry or cleverness or perseverance. But what we can do is be surrendered to it. We can be ready to welcome it. And so she offers some descriptions of it so that you can recognize what it is. One of the descriptions she's she offers is the description of Simeon recognizing Jesus in the temple. An excerpt from chapter 31 of The Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. Now, daughters, I still want to describe this prayer of quiet to you in the way that I have heard it talked about, and as the Lord has been pleased to teach it to me perhaps in order that I might describe it to you. It is in this kind of prayer, as I have said, that the Lord seems to me to begin to show us that he is hearing our petition. He begins to give us his kingdom on earth, so that we may truly praise him and hallow his name and strive to make others to do so likewise. This is a supernatural state, and however hard we try, we cannot reach it for ourselves. For it is a state in which the soul enters into peace, or rather, in which the Lord gives it peace through his presence, as he did to the just man Simeon. In this state, all the faculties are stilled. The soul, in a way which has nothing to do with the outward senses, realizes 
that it is now very close to its God, and that, if it were but a little closer, it would become one with him through union. This is not because it sees him either with its bodily or with its spiritual eyes. The just man Simeon saw no more than the glorious infant, a poor little child, who, to judge from the swaddling clothes in which it was wrapped, and from the small number of the people whom he had as a retinue to take him up to the temple, might well have been the son of these poor people, rather than the son of his heavenly father. But the child himself revealed to him who he was. Just so, though less clearly, does the soul know who he is. It cannot understand how it knows him, yet it sees that it it is in the kingdom, or at least is near to the king who will give it the kingdom. And it feels such reverence that it dares to ask nothing. It is, as it were, in a swoon, both inwardly and outwardly, so that the outward man, let me call it the body, and then you will understand me better, does not wish to move, but rests like one who has almost reached the end of his journey, so that it may the better start again upon its way, with redoubled strength for its task. The body experiences the greatest delight, and the soul is conscious of a deep satisfaction. So glad is it to merely find itself near the fountain that, even before it has begun to drink, it has had its fill. There seems nothing left for it to desire. The faculties are stilled, and have no wish to move, for any movement they may make appears to hinder the soul from loving God. They are not completely lost, however, since, two of them being free, they realize in whose presence they are. It is the will that is in captivity now, and if while this state is capable of experiencing any pain, the pain comes when it realizes that it will have to resume its liberty. The mind tries to occupy itself with only one thing, and the memory has no desire to busy itself with more. They both see that this is the one thing needful, and that anything else will unsettle them. Simeon saw lots of babies in the temple every day, and so how did he know Jesus How did you recognize Jesus as a baby, not even able to articulate a word? How did he know that Jesus was the Messiah? Teresa of Avila is what she says. It was the gift of this prayer. He saw Jesus, and it was this spark, this prayer of quiet, this new visitation. And once he received the single spark, he was ready to say, Now, Master, you let me go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. The spark allowed him to see the world in a whole different way. So it's contemplative prayer. Contemplation means to behold, to see. Up until that moment of prayer, he looked on any number of babies, didn't recognize the Messiah. When the Messiah, when the word of God came to him as a pure gift, he recognized it was the Messiah. He saw the world in a whole different way. Instead of anxious waiting for the Messiah to come, he had the joy of knowing the Messiah's presence. The joy of knowing that the salvation of Israel wasn't something distant in the future to be awaited,
but something that was already breaking in on him right now. The joy of knowing that even the Gentiles, who didn't even know God, would now have hope, a light to enlighten the nations. He recognized all of this, not because physiologically and biologically there was something that set Jesus apart. It was because of a movement of prayer deep in his heart. The recollection that he had practiced all his life prepared him for to recognize the Messiah when the Messiah came to him. This is a little bit what happens then in the prayer of quiet. It's not uh, that Jesus hasn't been present to us before he's been fully present to us, but by this little spark, uh, all of a sudden, we can see Jesus in a way that we couldn't see him before. We can recognize him in a way that he was present to us, he recognized us, but we didn't recognize him. And now we can recognize him. And in recognizing him, everything changes. This recognition of him deeply validates who we are before the, the Father. She says he comes to us as an ambassador so that uh, we might know the will of the Father because our will is so different than his. And so we need to begin to learn the Father's will. And one moment of this prayer kind of opens our eyes to the will of the Father in our lives and not only opens our eyes to it, but makes it attractive to us. Up until now, the will of the Father is oftentimes appreciated as something that is uh, an obligation. I'm, I'm fasting on Friday because I'm a good Catholic and I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to Mass on Sunday because I'm a good Catholic I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to confession because I'm a good Catholic and I'm supposed to do this. Well, you're right. This is our obligation of our faith. Religion, the word religio, means to bind oneself. We are binding ourselves to God by these commitments, and these commitments surely are God's will for us. But that's not all of God's will, and God's will isn't exhausted by the obligation. The Father's will for us involves a plan of love and wisdom and goodness. And the reason why we experience is an obligation that we have to do so much. And sometimes even we experience it, and it's the last thing we want to do. We just feel a repugnance towards God's will, and out of resignation we do what we're supposed to do. Well, that's a good starting point, but that's, that's, not, that's not yet the full Christian life. That's not the perfection of, our, of charity within us. That's not friendship love of God. To have friendship love of God is to see the beauty of what he desires, the splendor of it, and to let that wash over our souls and change the way we think about reality. Repent, repentare, means to think again, to see in a whole new way, to see the world through the resurrected eyes of Jesus. And when Jesus looks on the world through the resurrected, uh, uh, through his resurrected eyes, he sees the will of the Father being accomplished, and the glory of that breaking forth in the world. As Elizabeth of the Trinity says, she says, eternity is time, time is eternity, begun and still in progress. In other words, as time unfolds, the progress of eternity is being, is being revealed in us and breaking forth around us. And it's beautiful. 
before contemplative prayer, we're kind of blind to it. We might mentally assent to the possibility. We might even desire to see this with our hearts. But one moment of contemplative prayer, all of a sudden the will of the Father that seemed kind of remote to us, that seemed like an extrinsic imposition on our being, something inconvenient, all of a sudden with one moment of contemplative prayer, what seemed extrinsic all of a sudden becomes intrinsic. It becomes the desire of our hearts, the fountain, um, the deep dug well in the center of our being. And we find ourselves unable to desire anything else. In this prayer, Jesus is the ambassador who shows us the beauty of the will of the Father. And once we see that well, once we allow Jesus, the ambassador, his word to reveal the truth of it into our existence, we can never live the same way again. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. In what you've just said, Anthony, and 
and I'm sure we will be speaking about this more in the future, it, it should be of a special note that, once again, Teresa is very practical, and she will help us to be aware of those opportunities that we can take to foster that availability. And one of those that she puts a lot of emphasis on, I think it's over, she mentions it over maybe three or four chapters, the importance of the Eucharist mm-hmm. and having that time to be able to receive and to rest. Would you say that's an important thing for us to be aware of? Yes. After she talks about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, she begins commentary on give us this day our daily bread. And this kind of prayer, this contemplative prayer that God wants to begin in us, it's impossible to nurture it or for it to reach maturity if we don't feed it. And the Eucharist, this daily bread, Jesus, the bread of life, is what feeds this kind of prayer in us. We are able to wonder over and be struck by and captivated by the will of God in our lives if we feed this kind of prayer. And this kind of prayer can feed us. She doesn't say this exactly, but this is from John Paul II. This kind of prayer can feed us in three ways. It feeds us because uh, the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And so when we go to Mass and we offer that sacrifice, that sacrifice is transforming in our lives and transforming in the world because in that sacrifice, the Father's will is manifest and being accomplished. And so that's something that feeds this kind of prayer because the reality of what this prayer sees is the reality that is realized every time we go to Mass. All our heartbreaks and disappointments and deepest desires are placed on the altar and through the ministry of the priest joined to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the world is transformed in that. It doesn't get better than that. It's also true too though that this sacrament is a sacrament of communion, meaning when at Mass we receive Holy Communion, it strengthens this kind of prayer. It actually provides food for this prayer because just as this prayer is a deeper communion with the will of the Father, every time we receive communion, it's Jesus's, what we're receiving is Jesus's total surrender to the Father. We're eating on that. We're feeding on that. That's nourishing us when we go to communion. So it, it strengthens this kind of prayer. It makes this prayer stronger. It gives this prayer the nourishment it needs so that what it has begun in us can reach maturity. There's a final dimension of this prayer and probably the most fitting part of this prayer that St. Teresa is talking about, and that is this Eucharistic bread of Jesus that feeds us, that is our sacrifice, is also his presence in the world. An excerpt from chapter 34 of The Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila. Delight to remain with him. Do not lose such an excellent time for talking with him as the hour after communion. Remember that this is a very profitable hour for the soul. If you spend it in company of the good Jesus, you are doing him a great service. Be very careful then, daughters, not to lose it. 
If you are compelled by obedience to do something else, try to leave your soul with the Lord. For He is your Master, and though it be in a way you may not understand, He will not fail to teach you. But if you take your thoughts elsewhere and pay no more attention to Him than if you had not received Him and care nothing for His being within you, how can He make Himself known to you? You must complain, not of Him, but of yourself. This, then, is a good time for our Master to teach us and for us to listen to Him. I do not tell you to say no prayers at all, for if I did, you would take hold of my words and say I was talking about contemplation, which you need practice only if the Lord brings you to it. No, you should say the Patronoster, and realize that you are verily and indeed in the company of Him who taught it you and kiss his feet in gratitude to him for having desired to teach you and beg him to show you how to pray and never to leave you. You may be in the habit of praying while looking at a picture of Christ, but at a time like this, it seems foolish to me to try to turn away from the living image, the person himself, to look at his picture. Would it not be foolish if we had a portrait of someone whom we dearly loved and, when the person himself came to see us, we refused to talk with him and carried on our entire conversation with a portrait? Do you know when I find the use of a picture an excellent thing and take great pleasure in it? When the person is absent and we are made to feel his loss by our great aridity, it is then that we might find it a great comfort to look at the picture of him who we have such reason to love. This is great inspiration and makes us wish that in whichever direction we turn our eyes, we could see the picture. What can we look upon that is better or more attractive to the sight than upon him who so dearly loves us and contains within himself all good things? Unhappy are those heretics who, through their own fault, have lost this comfort as well as others. When you have received the Lord, and are in his very presence, try to shut the bodily eyes and to open the eyes of the soul and to look into your own hearts. For I tell you and tell you again, for I should like to repeat it often, that if you practice this habit of staying with him, not just once or twice, but whenever you communicate and strive to keep your conscience clear so that you can often rejoice in this your good, he will not, as I have said, come so much disguised as to be unable to make his presence known to you in many ways, according to the desire which you have of seeing him. So great indeed may be your longing for him that he will reveal himself to you wholly. But if we pay no heed to him save when we have received him and go away from him in search of other and baser things, what can he do? Will he have to drag us back by force to look at him? And be with him because he desires to reveal himself to us? No, for when he revealed himself to all men plainly and told them clearly who he was, they did not treat him at all well. Very few of them indeed even believed him. So he grants us an exceeding great favor when he is pleased to show us that it is he who is in the most holy sacrament but he will not reveal himself openly and communicate his glories and bestow his treasures save on those he knows greatly desire him, for these are his true friends. 
I assure you that anyone who is not a true friend and does not come to receive him as such, after doing all in his power to prepare for him, must never importune him to reveal himself to him. Hardly is the hour over with such a person has spent in fulfilling the church's commandment that he goes home and tries to drive Christ out of the house. What with all his other business and occupations and worldly hindrances, he seems to be making all possible haste to prevent the Lord from taking possession of the house, which is his own. And so the, the real presence of Jesus, his body and blood, soul and divinity in the sacrament, present to us, uh, personally present to us, evokes a response to us, the response of adoration. Uh, to endure means to kiss. And when we come before the Lord in his Eucharistic presence, where he's wholly present to us, the response that ought to be evoked in us is that we want to kiss. To kiss means to breathe your soul into another. And so when you kiss your husband or your wife or your child, you're, you're breathing your life into them. You're giving everything you have to them. And when we see the presence of Jesus, which is a present completely given to us, a presence that is kissed into our existence, the only proper response is to adore, to exchange the kiss, to give a kiss back, to give our whole life to him. The Eucharistic presence of Christ helps us to surrender our lives to the will of the Father in the same way Jesus surrendered his life for our sake. And so in that way, the Eucharistic prayer of Christ goes with this contemplative prayer or this prayer of quiet. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.